0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: I'm John Schwartz, a writer of The Intercept, filling in for Ryan Grimm on this week's episode of Deconstructed. You may have heard the term a writer's writer, which means an author who is especially appreciated by other authors who understand what it takes to produce good work. Robert Perry, who died in 2018, was a kind of reporter's reporter. He broke huge stories, uncovered some truly stunning facts about recent American political history, but he was largely appreciated by other journalists and did not get the attention he deserved from the world for a very good reason— Powerful people did not like what he reported and were anxious to make sure that you, among lots of other people, never heard about it. Perry helped break the Iran-Contra scandal and the Contra's involvement in cocaine smuggling in the 1980s. He worked for years for the Associated Press and then Newsweek. But when he found himself stymied in these jobs, he created one of the first online journalism sites, ConsortiumNews.com, in 1995. Did you know that in the early 1990s, after the fall of communism, the Russian government sent a report to the U.S. Congress telling them that Soviet intelligence had been monitoring the Reagan campaign in 1980, and the campaign had conspired with the revolutionary Iranian government to keep American hostages in Tehran until after the election? Or that Alexander Haig, Reagan's Secretary of State, told him that he, Haig, had confirmed with the Saudi Crown Prince that Jimmy Carter had given Saddam Hussein a, quote, green light to invade Iran in 1980? Probably not, unless you were reading the classified documents Perry was publishing on his website. During his life, Perry wrote many books, including Lost History, Contra's Cocaine, and Project Truth, Fooling America, How Washington Insiders Twist the Truth and Manufacture the Conventional Wisdom, and America's Stolen Narrative, From Washington and Madison to Nixon, Reagan, and the Bushes to Obama. On this episode of Deconstructed, I spoke to Perry's son, Nat, who edited a new collection of Perry's work called American Dispatches, It's a book that should be read by anyone who's interested in what is going on, how this country actually worked for the past 50 years, and much more. I guarantee you that if you read it, you'll be in for some pretty big surprises. Nat, thank you for joining us on Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start by telling a story of your father's that, to me, kind of explains everything about the U.S. foreign policy blob in Washington, D.C., And the blob, as people may know who are familiar with the term, includes not just the sort of official members of the foreign policy establishment, but also the people at the top of the U.S. media. And this is something that your your dad described happening right after he had started working for Newsweek in 1987. And it's in the middle of the Mm -hmm. Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, Congress is investigating the fact that the U.S. government, the Reagan administration, had sent arms to Iran and taken the money and turned around and given it to the Contras attempting to overthrow the government of Nicaragua. And your father went to a dinner at the home of the Washington Bureau Chief of Newsweek, Evan Thomas. And as your father said, the invited guests of honor were retired General Brent Scowcroft, Uh, This is not something your father said, but people may remember him as one of the closest advisors to President George H.W. Bush, Bush number one. Uh, Scowcroft had been one of the three members of the Tower Board, which had just completed an initial investigation of the Iran-Contra Arms for Hostages scandal, and Representative Dick Cheney, the ranking Republican on the House Iran-Contra panel. At the time, a key question in the Iran-Contra scandal was whether Reagan's National Security Advisor, Admiral John Poindexter, had informed the president about the diversion of profits from arms sales to Iran to Reagan's beloved Contras. As the catered dinner progressed, Scowcroft piped up, I probably shouldn't say this, but if I were advising Admiral Poindexter and he had told the president about the diversion, I would advise him to say that he hadn't. I was startled. Here was a Tower Commission member acknowledging that he really wasn't interested in the truth after all, but rather political expediency. Not familiar with the etiquette of these Newsweek affairs, I stopped eating. General, I said, you're not suggesting that the admirals should commit perjury, are you? There was an awkward silence around the table, as if I'd committed some social faux pas. Then Newsweek executive editor Maynard Packer, who was sitting next to me, boomed out, sometimes you have to do what's good for the country. (laughs) Yeah. So that was their view of what's good for the country. Uh, What was your father's view of what was good for the country?
2: Well, I think my father had this sort of old-fashioned sort of Boy Scout view of journalism that, you know, the the job of a journalist is to find things out and go tell the people. And, you know, sort of this old-fashioned idea of, you know, let the chips fall where they may and let justice be done, though the heavens fall, that sort of attitude. He came from this the tradition of the 70s with, you know, the Watergate Press Corps and coming out of the Vietnam War era where... You know, I think at that time, people really just had no inclination to really believe anything that the government was telling them. And um, journalists really had a skeptical view of Washington, and they weren't particularly inclined to believe what they were being told. But that sort of changed in the 1980s. You know, a lot of the pressure that the Reagan administration was bringing to bear on editors and journalists. And he saw this shift in the way that journalists Covered these things, and and at the time he started at the Associated Press, and that's where he broke a lot of his important stories on Iran, Contra, and Contra cocaine, uh, and even in that environment, he found it somewhat oppressive, and the editors didn't always you know want to go out on a limb with some of these stories, but he found that eventually they would publish his articles. The one time was, it was done by mistake, and another amusing anecdote from from that era was when uh, he broke the story of. The Contras uh, trafficking cocaine. Uh, he and his partner Brian Barger were the the first to uh, report on that, and you know they had developed I think something like two dozen sources by that point. They had you know people on the record, government documents, and you know pretty much all of the documentation you could hope for. And um, they had this good story ready to go. And at the last moment, the Associated Press uh, editors decided to kill the story, but it had already gone down to the Latin America wires and was translated into Spanish and was inadvertently published in Spanish language newspapers and so the English AP wire sort of uh, ran to catch up and you know put out the story in the American press and so you know it's sort of a you know, amusing anecdote but you know that was sort of how things went you know during that period in the 80s a lot of pushback from editors and you know a lot of uh, fear of, you know, coming under pressure from the administration. But then, you know, he went to Newsweek. So he, that was the environment at the AP, which, you know, he he found was already somewhat difficult. And, you know, a lot of the stories he was working on ended up, you know, causing some friction with his superiors. And so he went on to, the, on to Newsweek and thought that that might be a better environment. But then I think soon after he ended up at Newsweek, that's when they had this catered dinner, that uh, the story that you just told of, Maynard Parker bellowing out, you know, sometimes you have to do what's good for the country. And he realized then he was in a, a very different environment than he expected. Um, you know, he always sort of described the AP as sort of a, a working man's news bureau, but you get to Newsweek and it was um, a very different environment. You know, this this dinner that he played out, the story that you told, it was a catered dinner with tuxedoed waiters. And, you know, so it's just a very different environment. And what he came to sort of realized at this point was that, you know, he was in a different world than he thought he was. And that, you know, there wasn't this adversarial relationship that he thought was the way things should be between journalists and people in power, but that they were sort of sitting at the same table and both sort of interested in sort of shaping conventional wisdom and maybe not telling the full story to the American people.
1: Yeah. I think we should go back for just one second and emphasize again that ap broke this story this enormous story by your father and his partner about the contras funding themselves with sales from cocaine by accident against their own wishes <laughs> yeah
2: yeah i mean that's that's how it came to be i mean i don't you know, I, I don't know all the the details but uh, yeah basically he had filed this report and thought that it was good to go, and then he and Brian were told, "Yes, yeah, sorry, we're not going to run this." You know, they probably got some pushback from the Reagan administration. Maybe they called someone in the White House and was told, "Like ah, this is, you know, this is nonsense," or you know, "Robert Perry's crazy." You know, da da da. But then it went out by accident, um, and that's how that was published because um, they had to. They scrambled to put out the English version so they just to sort of save face but yeah I guess it was sort of an embarrassing episode for them but I think one thing that you know is also worth pointing out about that episode was that even though this this is probably one of the biggest stories of the 80s I mean when you think about at the time there was the just say no campaign I mean cocaine was a big deal I mean like you had the crack cocaine explosion and you know inner cities being just devastated by this in this epidemic of crack cocaine. And, you know, you had the Reagan administration pushing this Just Say No campaign, and Nancy Reagan was out there, you know, doing these events and all this stuff.
0: Not long ago in Oakland, California, I was asked by a group of children what to do if they were offered drugs. And I answered, Just Say No.
2: At the same time, the government's turning a blind eye to cocaine trafficking, which is probably the the kindest way (laughs) of putting it you know, in some cases, like they may have been more deeply involved than just turning a blind eye. But, you know, they at the at the bare minimum, they kind of look the other way as this was happening. But, you know, even so, so when the AP put that out, you know, accidentally or inadvertently, it wasn't really followed up. I mean, I think that was one of the things that um, my dad always found very frustrating about reporting in the 80s and breaking some of these stories is that he was often just, you know, out on a limb. When you break a story like this, what you what you want to happen is for it to have legs, you know, and like for other media outlets to follow up. And, but, you know, the Washington Post didn't touch it. New York Times didn't touch it. You know, it was, you know, the AP kind of on its own that published this article. And uh, it did lead to a congressional investigation. John Kerry, as uh, I guess he was chairman of the subcommittee on foreign relations, but he he started an investigation in the, mid mid to late 80s. It went on for a couple of years. Um, they uncovered a lot of really important details about this whole operation and something called the arms supermarket, which was involved with the drug trade and arms trafficking and all that. But even that was somewhat ignored. And you know John Kerry's investigation never really got the attention it deserved until maybe a, a decade later than the whole Gary Webb series came out. And it got new life.
0: There are documents which we have obtained independently from BCCI that confirm a participation in planned arms deals, and while some of these deals may have been aborted in the end, they do appear to have been negotiated with important Iran-Contra figures like Adnan Khashoggi and Manucher Ghorbanifar, who is the arms merchant used by Oliver North and the NSC for negotiations with Iranian moderates.
1: Yes, and I, I think it's worth remembering that Newsweek. I don't know whether your father was still working there or not, or whether he'd left by that point. Uh, referred to John Kerry for investigating this as a Randy conspiracy buff.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That was what my dad used that line quite often when he would write about his experience at Newsweek. You know, he he was fond of yeah telling the story of how they would call John Kerry a Randy conspiracy buff. So you know, it kind of goes to show the mentality they had towards some of these very important stories. I mean to me, like that that whole contra cocaine story and and later what Gary Webb did with his reporting on it. I mean, how the media treated that and how they continue to sort of, you know, pretend like it did it didn't happen or that, you know, Gary Webb was, you know, crazy or, you know, that this was just a conspiracy theory. I mean, that really kind of shows to me, you know, where the limits are for what the media can Cover. I mean, in some ways, they do, you know, the New York Times will break some important stories here. They, you know, there'll be some exposes on things. And so, you know, it's not like they do a bad job on everything. But when, when you look at some of those stories like Contra Cocaine, it really shows the limits of what is just beyond the pale for them and where they sort of draw the line.
1: And the most incredible thing about the Contra Cocaine story is not even the fact in and of itself, but to me, you would look at the situation and be like, of, of course, of course we're protecting cocaine traffickers. Because the New York Times itself had covered in depth the fact that we had been uh, you know, working closely with heroin traffickers during the Vietnam War. Right. Mm-hmm. More recently in Afghanistan, the New York Times ran big stories about how closely we were working with Hamid Karzai's brother, who is the biggest heroin trafficker in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so – like of course that happens. Like like any government trying to run an empire, like the U.S., is going to end up allying itself with people who are getting money from anywhere they can, and that is going to always yeah. include drugs. And so it shouldn't be a surprise. It should be something that people should have expected. But instead, it was seen as this you know preposterous nonsense. And <laughs> yeah, uh, you know as point. Uh, yeah as you say, uh, it, it, the context was that George H.W. Bush was giving a speech about the scourge of drugs, where he held up a bag of cocaine that he claimed had been bought across the street from the White House.
0: This is crack cocaine, seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It could easily have been heroin or PCP. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones and it's murdering our children let there be no mistake. This stuff is poison.
1: It was crazy. So, of course, it, it was a huge story, but it also should have been expected. Yeah. And your father did a great job you know, covering it, not just at the time, but continuing, as you say, with Gary Webb, where Gary Webb sort of rebroke the story in 1996 yes. and then faced you know, total career destruction and very sadly later committed suicide.
2: Yeah. And one of the things my dad was fond of pointing out about Gary Webb and the, the was his contribution to you know, this bigger picture, not just by his reporting, which was substantial and filled in a lot of details about what happened to the cocaine once it arrived in the US and how it fueled these drug gangs and all that. But it led to a CIA investigation, which essentially confirmed a lot of the details, you know. And of course, the executive summary kind of would contradict the the actual content of the inspector general's report. But, you know, as someone who would read all these reports cover to cover, my dad found that the content of their reports actually did confirm a lot of what Gary Webb had reported and, and what my dad had reported and, and filled in a lot of the, the details there. So, I mean, they, you know, despite the fact that the media treated Gary Webb as a pariah and destroyed his career and, you know, sadly led to him committing suicide. He actually, his reporting was vindicated in many ways by the CIA's own investigation.
1: Gary Webb, are you there this morning? Yeah, I am. Good morning. Good morning to you. How are you? Very tired. Tell us, you know, in a a couple of minutes what this is about.
0: It's about a a drug ring that operated in uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles in the mid 80s. And it was connected to a Nicaraguan uh, anti-communist army called the FDN, which was one of the biggest groups that we know as the Contras. And it was uh, selling cocaine in Los Angeles for the most part, but in other areas of the country as well, to the gangs, to the Crips and Bloods, down in South Central Los Angeles. And they were taking the money and using some of it, I don't know how much, we haven't figured that out yet, to to buy weapons for the Contras.
1: Yeah. So I would just say for anyone who's curious about this, uh, get American Dispatches. There's a ton of it in there. Or you can just visit the CIA website, which really does have its own uh, investigation of what happened and includes some pretty startling details. That's right. So next, I wanted to ask you about your father's long years of work on trying to uncover the history of the 1968 presidential campaign and whether or not Richard Nixon had actually conspired with the Vietnamese government the South Vietnamese government to keep the war going. And this was as with the contra cocaine story an example of how valuable the work your father did was because he would keep at things literally for decades. And as more and more history dribbled out, he would take it and you know put it in context and explain exactly what it meant. So what was the story in 1968?
2: Well, I mean President Johnson was negotiating in Paris for an an end to the Vietnam War in 1968. And it looked promising in terms of reaching some kind of peace agreement to end the war. But Nixon, Nixon's campaign sort of went behind the back of the Johnson administration and through back channels sort of promised more favorable deal to the North Vietnamese when Nixon was elected. And of course, when he was elected, there was no secret plan, you know, to end the war, but it was just escalated and tens of thousands of additional Americans died and who knows how many Vietnamese. But yet, it was a story that my father covered for decades and through a lot of FOIA requests and visits to the Nixon library and just digging for decades, really uncovered a lot of details, including something about the um, Wall Street insider trading that kind of and this is one story I included in the the reader American dispatches I wanted because he, he did he did a lot of reporting on this story in the mid 2010s sort of when he was really writing about this a lot but you know I actually I wanted I, I definitely wanted to include something in the reader about this um, story because it was a very very important story but I found that most of the articles he wrote were you know, very long form and he went, he went into a lot of detail and, you know, w- w- compiling a, a, a big reader like this ended up being 700 pages. I was really like looking for brevity as much as possible. So I, the the article I chose on this was uh, about the wall street insider trading. Cause uh, I guess some people on wall street knew of what Nixon was up to and um, knew that the war was going to be prolonged and they were, you know, profiting off of uh, this insider knowledge. So that's something he uncovered probably in 2014 or so. But yeah, that's sort of the gist of it. But it's um, sort of a precursor to the 1980 October surprise where the Reagan campaign went behind the back of the Carter administration that was trying to free hostages in Iran. And that's a whole, whole nother story that he pursued for decades. But yeah, it's sort of a very similar kind of dynamic.
1: Yeah, and the the significance of the 1968 story and the Nixon campaign is, again, not just the facts in and of themselves, but if you know, as we now do, and in fact, you can read about it in the New York Times about Nixon absolutely did do this, absolutely did conspire to prolong the war, uh, is that once you know that one campaign did do this already, it casts a different light on the story of what happened in 1980 again, a story that your father pursued for years, for decades, and uncovered truly extraordinary facts. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Set, set the stage for the 1980 Reagan campaign.
2: Sure. Well, as we all know, there was a revolution in Iran in 1979. Islamist radicals took over, and when they overthrew the Shah, they also seized the U.S. embassy in Tehran. And they wanted documents, I guess. I think that was the, the main goal of seizing the embassy. They wanted to prove what the CIA was doing in Iran and backing the Shah and all that. But they, they held, they had these American hostages that they held in the uh, embassy for, I believe, 444 days in total. And this was really like the story of 1980. It was covered every night on the nightly news. I mean, I, I don't personally remember it. I was only at the time. But, uh, you know, it was, if, you, if you go back and look at sort of archival footage, you see they had a, a daily count on the nightly news channels, like a day, you know, 76, day 77.
0: Good evening. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy, fought the Marine guards for three hours, overpowered them, and took dozens of American hostages. The students want the deposed Shah returned to Iran for trial. Some 60 Americans, including our fellow citizen whom you just saw, bound and blindfolded, are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It's Friday morning there now, but throughout this night in Washington, officials will continue their search for some way to negotiate the hostage's freedom.
1: I think on one show, I'm trying to remember whether it was Nightline or somewhere else. Like, you know, the the name of their segment was always "America Held Hostage."
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, it was a big deal, and it was it was destroying Jimmy Carter's re-election chances. Uh, you know, th- there were other factors, the economy, and various you know the the whole stagflation and the national malaise at that time. But this did not help, you know. And, and so what they were hoping for was an October surprise where they might free the hostages right before the election? and that was sort of the actually the original October surprise. like that's when the the term was coined. And now nowadays every election has an October surprise or a, uh, an expected October surprise, but that was the the first one. And I think that that term was actually coined by um, William Casey, who was the uh, campaign director for Ronald Reagan in nineteen eighty and would later become CIA director. He's an old spy master. He was in the original OSS, the precursor to the CIA. So, you know, he'd he'd been in the CIA for a very long time, and he was the campaign director for Ronald Reagan. And the allegations actually came up as soon as the election happened. There were already suspicions, because on the day of the inauguration after Reagan defeated Carter, within minutes of Reagan being sworn in, the hostages were freed, and so there were always some suspicions that there were there was something that that went on there between the Reagan campaign and the Iranians to hold the hostages there until the election to ensure that Carter was defeated. My dad s- sort of discovered a lot of the the details when he was covering Iran Contra because these um, networks that were being used in the mid eighties. For, um, transfers, uh, of arms from the U.S. to Iran as part of this whole operation to illegally fund the Nicaraguan Contras, these networks were established much earlier, which is what he was beginning to discover. What he was hearing this, you know, from his sources, like in the mid 80s, because most people assume that these networks were established at the time, like in 84, 85. But, uh, what he was being told was that they went back to 1980 when, uh, when the, Reagan campaign undercut Carter's hostage negotiations, uh, which, by the way, you know, I would say is treason. You know, if you're going behind the back of the the president to undercut his foreign policy and to hold Americans hostage, you know, for political gain, I mean, I think that would pretty much fall under any definition of treason. And so his first book was, uh, well, actually, his second book was called Trick or Treason uh, about the October surprise mystery. So he was uh, actually recruited by PBS Frontline to produce a documentary about this in the early 90s. So what it all came down to, uh, you know, there were these allegations that there were secret meetings in Paris and Madrid between the Reagan campaign and the Iranians. But the, the defense that the Reagan people would give is basically they would give alibis, like say, oh, well, William Casey wasn't Couldn't have been there because he was at this conference in in London. And so my dad went on this multi-continent investigation, you know, trying to solve this mystery and pursuing all these alibis and finding out that none of the alibis held up. And, you know, he wasn't at the conference in London. He wasn't at the Bohemian Grove and all these other places where he was supposed to be. But he never really proved that it happened. All, you know at the time, really, what he proved was that you know the alibis didn't hold up, and that there, there was always this possibility that uh, these meetings took place. But then later, after publishing Trick or Treason, he did he uncovered a bunch of documents from the the House investigation into this matter that took place in uh, 1992, and it was during the transition between the Bush administration. And the Clinton administration that they hastily wrapped up this investigation and had all these boxes of files they kept in a, a storage room, actually it was, it was an old ladies' room that was converted into a storage room, and he sort of surreptitiously copied a bunch of classified files that uh, weren't really meant to see the light of day. That really provided strong evidence that you know that this did happen. And one of the most the strongest uh, pieces of evidence was this russian report from the russian intelligence services that confirmed a lot of uh, these allegations but much of this evidence was suppressed and kept from the american people
0: hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank
1: My favorite part about that story is him going down into the basement, going down to this uh, former bathroom where all the reports are being stored, because he he was like one of the only people in Washington who was actually interested in reading this report, (laughs) and the like. The security guard was like, uh, or the staffer, whoever it was, was like, "Oh yeah, they're they're in the bathroom. Go look in there." and He went inside and opened up one of the boxes, and he was expecting to find copies of the declassified version of the report. But instead, they'd waved him into this bathroom that held copies of the classified version that he was absolutely not supposed to have access to, and just quietly (laughs) copied some of these pages, including, as you say, uh, the report from Russian intelligence saying that, yes, absolutely, this did happen. Here's where it happened. Here's who was involved. And so you found the Russian government saying this. You found uh, the head of French intelligence at the time, who was very conservative and close to the Bushes. Uh, you found Yasser Arafat, like all of these people who were involved, in, like like top level international politics, said yes, this happened, and I had this personal experience, you know, demonstrating that it did. Yeah. But this did not seem to be able to penetrate the consciousness of the U.S. media.
2: Yeah, that's right. Another good source was uh, Ari Ben who who is a former Israeli intelligence and he also was an eyewitness he said that he saw Bill Casey going into this hotel where these meetings supposedly took place and but yeah I mean he was um, really alone in covering this and you know he knew I think at the time you know this was <laughs> this was not a a career advancement opportunity <laughs> you know he it was it was clear that this this was a story that you know, nobody wanted, you know, it had been debunked, you know, I'm using air quotes, you know, for debunked. I mean, essentially the you know, the congressional investigations kind of whitewashed or, you know, accepted all these bogus alibis. And, and once that congressional investigation ran its course, the media, you know, took that as a cue that, all right, this is just not a story that, you know, we're interested in. And there were a lot of stories that trumpeted the congressional debunking. And so, you know, it was the, the conventional wisdom was established. Like, okay, this is a conspiracy theory and, you know, not something that serious journalists were looking into. And, but I guess, yeah, because of that, you know, he my dad was able to sort of get access to these documents that nobody else was interested in. He actually was, Another funny part of that story was that when he was in the bathroom, in this converted bathroom that was being used as storage for these files, when he discovered he had all these classified documents at his fingertips, his minder, the guy who was working in the the storage facility and was supposed to be keeping an eye on him, was offering to help. But he would say, no, 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 I, I got this. And and apparently the the copying machine he was using was some old, you know, Xerox machine that kept breaking down and he'd be like, I- I'll fix it, you know, I'll fix it. And he sort of just like, you know, trying to keep the minder at a distance. And, and he's also, I think, limited to something like 12 copies for each visit. So he would he was going there. He'd just go day after day. And <laughs> I'm just, I'm just 12 back 12 again for of... this
1: boring old material. <laughs> yeah, this boring exactly old it. non-classified material.
2: <laughs> yeah, he got a lot of uh, good material that way, and, um, and that's when he decided to start this website, Consortium News, because even at that time, it, even among the alternative media, nobody was really interested in this. He, so he had all these, you know, important documents that he thought he could really tell a good story, uh, write a good story about, and um, no one was interested in it. So that's uh, what led him to launch his website, Consortium News, in 1995, sort of like really the early days of the internet. There was you know, anyone who kind of remembers that, that time will remember there wasn't really that much on the internet. I mean, you had some, like, UFO enthusiasts would have some websites, and, you know, you could find some interesting stuff on the internet, but you didn't have a lot of, like, serious journalism being done, and so he saw this as an opportunity to put this information out there, and it's, it's sort of, in a way, the original WikiLeaks as well, because he published those documents in, in their raw form, you know, to back up his articles, so he, he had published, you know, a series, I think, a, a series of eight articles on these October Surprise X-Files, as he called them, but then uh, had the original documents there as well, so anyone could see for themselves.
1: Yeah, that is one of the most remarkable things about Consortium News, consortiumnews.com. I recommend that everybody check it out and uh, the extensive archives of Robert Perry's writing there. It's it's uh, you know, get get American Dispatches, but there is so so much more as you say. You couldn't fit it all in one <laughs> yeah. book. But I think after beating up on uh, these Republican presidents for a little bit, we should mention one of the documents that I believe was found in that same bathroom uh, involving Jimmy Carter. And what it said about what Jimmy Carter had done regarding
2: Iran. The green light. Yeah, there was. So these talking points that Alexander Haig prepared for Ronald Reagan in, I believe, 1981, and you might correct me if I'm getting anything wrong, but uh, basically confirmed that Jimmy Carter had given Iraq the green light to uh, invade Iran in 1979. Which you know, I, I feel like these days we've become so jaded, and we like some of these things don't even seem that shocking anymore. I don't know. Like it, it seems there's so much that goes on these days that I don't know if that sounds shocking. But you know, I guess it, it, the the point is that he 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 gave a green light to this war, and we were also providing weapons to Iraq, you know, clandestinely, and later, of course, we were supplying Iran with weapons. So we're we're funding supplying both sides with weapons. That was uh, one of the documents that he came across in the ladies room was this memo that confirmed that Jimmy Carter gave the green light to Iraq's invasion. of Iran?
1: Yes. And something else your father pointed out was that when when the government officially declassified these talking points from Alexander Haig. He
2: was secretary of state, by the way, I think.
1: Yeah, that's right. He was secretary of state and he had just returned from his first trip uh, to the Middle East and it was reporting back to Reagan. Right. And finally, you know, decades later, these talking points were declassified mostly, but as often happens when some documents are declassified, sections are redacted. And two of the nine paragraphs were redacted when this memo was declassified. And uh, one of them was the one with Hague's statement about Carter. So officially, uh, we're not supposed to know mm-hmm. this. It's all thanks to that bathroom in the basement of mm-hmm. the Capitol. And, you know, again, the extraordinary thing about these kinds of facts is that in the United States, people are barely aware of them, if they're aware of them at all. The people who know them dismiss them as having zero importance, but to the rest of the world, they are pretty significant. The Supreme Leader of Iran gave a speech in 2009, where he specifically mentioned how uh, America gave Saddam a green light. If Saddam did not have a green light from the Americans, he would not have attacked our borders. They imposed eight years of war in our country. About 300,000 of our people were martyred. So uh, people in other countries do pay attention to this kind of stuff. It's just here where we don't hear Mm -hmm. about it. And Mm -hmm. again, it's what this adds to the context of world affairs. Like If you are Iranian and you believe that Alexander Haig was correct about this, That's kind of a sore spot, you know, (laughs) like if America gave Saddam Hussein a green light to attack your country, killing hundreds of thousands of people, uh, including with chemical weapons, you know, you're going to have a certain perspective on the United States and Americans just don't know anything about that.
2: That's right. I mean, it also speaks to the just cynicism of our leaders, you know, because, you know, just thinking about this, you know, the, the green light that Carter gave and the fact that we also clandestinely armed iraq and iran during this time but you know, specifically iraq because i mean these this was what was used basically as justification years later well ori- originally with the the persian gulf war and that was another one we gave a green light to invade kuwait you know april glasby the us ambassador to iraq told the iraqis that they could basically go ahead and we don't take a position on Arab Arab conflicts. But then, you know, they use these incidents to justify our own wars, you know. So I mean just the cynicism of that, I mean, where they know that they've sort of authorized this and they've armed them. They've given they've given them the weapons and you know, while it was happening, they they ignored it or they enabled it, they lied about it, and and then years later they use it as justification for our own intervention. And actually I mean, there's so many examples of that. I mean Noriega was another one in, you know, the invasion of Panama in 1990. I mean, this guy was you know, a CIA asset, you know, involved with the, the cocaine trade and all that. But then when it became when he stepped out of line or became politically inconvenient, we decided to invade and take him out. And so, you know, there really is such, such cynicism and, and just the way that they manipulate the American people, how people, you know, don't know this very important background. So it enables people to be more easily manipulated, you know, and, and then it just kind of goes on and on. And, you know, so we have another war here and, and then we forget the lessons of that war. And then we go to Syria and, you know, but I think that's what, you know, when you read my dad's writing and hopefully when people you know read this reader, I mean, what comes through is, that I think he's also, he's growing exasperation over, over the years that the lies that are told and how, the American people are just manipulated constantly, and and no one ever seems to learn any lessons from anything.
1: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about sort of how he approached his work, because I think that in particular was a key thing that he understood was necessary. I think you find that in the most effective communicators, like of any political persuasion, or even just advertisers. Like I like to quote uh, something in a book by Frank Luntz, who is a very you mm-hmm. know, famous, uh, like sort of Republican consultant but also does tons of consulting for just corporations on ads, as I understand it. And he wrote this book called Words That Work. It's not what you say, it's what people hear. Mm. And I think that is extremely good advice for anybody who wants to communicate with other human beings. It doesn't matter what you say if people don't hear and understand it. Mm -hmm. And Luntz said, repetition, repetition, repetition. You may be making yourself sick by saying the exact same thing for the umpteenth time, but the overwhelming majority of your customers or constituents aren't paying as much attention as you are. And that is one of the core problems to me of the US media is that it's assumed that like if a story is told once, then you're done with it. Mm-hmm. And you, should, you can leave it behind forever because mm-hmm. everybody already knows about it. Well, that's people true. don't already know about yeah. it and your father understood that.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think even... Myself or you, I'm sure, you know, there are things you don't remember. I mean, somebody who pays very close attention to all these things and you do your research and, you know, you read and you study the history, but we can't, we don't remember everything. I think that's one of the the good things about you know twitter and like social media like p- sometimes people will dig up some old clip or something and share it and like it's like it, it can be very important you know to see to just refresh your memory about these things so it's yeah, it is important to try to include the history when you know, as a journalist and yeah don't don't assume that people remember everything that you know it is important to go back and retell the story i think also as a writer you know it helps you know to get back and provide the context for yourself so that you're sure that you understand, you know, what it is that you're, you're trying to explain to the reader.
1: Yes. I will say I'm now getting old enough that I sometimes read things that I wrote long ago and I'd completely forgotten what I'd said. It's was like, well, that was pretty interesting. <laughs> good, good for yeah, me in I 2004. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so, so that is part of the repetition that I think is so key that people should understand about the, like how to approach this work is that, When you're repeating stuff, you're going back and you're telling the history again. And you have to tell the history because individual facts mean nothing to people. And they cannot even really understand the facts or hear the facts if they don't know the context for them. And so your dad was fantastic about that, about providing that context, not just here's one or two interesting facts, but here's where they fit into the larger overall story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, he, you know, he had this tendency, and this is something that that was a bit of a challenge for me as the editor of this reader, you know, because he he did do this so effectively, or, you know, always going back and re-examining stories from different angles. But, you know, I I realized when you put it in a book, you know, you might not want a lot of repetition. So, you know, that was something that, um, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to, keep enough you know so that it would hold the the essence of each article so that it had that the context that he he felt was important you know for each, for each individual article but also keep keeping in mind that as a reader you don't want to necessarily read the same thing over and over in one book you know but yeah he he was very fond of uh, you know re- revisiting these themes and including a lot of history. And I think one thing that, you know, he also, as someone who was in Washington for so long and covering these stories for so long, he saw, I mean, these, these same people just get recycled, you know, whether it's like Elliot Abrams or, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, Dick Cheney. I mean, people who were just, they've always been there, you know, in different iterations. And actually one of the early articles that I included from, I think in 1981, as the Reagan administration was taking shape, my dad wrote an article uh, for the AP that was describing the backgrounds of all of these people that were being put in key foreign policy positions, particularly on Central America and how how the Reagan administration was going to tackle the foreign policy challenges in Central America. But all these people were Vietnam War figures, you know, generals and you know people who were very much involved with the prosecution of the Vietnam War, so. You know, from that point, you know, you, see so you have these people recycled from Vietnam, put in charge of Central America. And then a couple of decades later, some of these same people were then, or their protégés, you know, they, the people who cut their teeth in Central America, then were put in charge of Iraq policy, you know, and it just goes on and on, you know. And so you have to, you know, tell the full, the story of the, you know, the history, because it's uh, oftentimes it's the very same people that are doing, that are implementing the the same policies from one continent to the other. And, you know, that the, but they're basically pursuing the same neocon agenda.
1: Yeah. You know, you probably know the famous quote from the Czech writer Milan Kundera about how, you know, people's struggle against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that the first time and you know, uh, he was sort of a dissident writer under the you know, ultimate control of the Soviet regime. And he thought, oh, well, that must be awful how that happens in communist countries like that. But it is absolutely 100% true. And just remembering the past is an incredibly powerful weapon. And I think that we should make sure to put in a plug for, you know, what your father did most of all, which is reading things. Like the amazing <laughs> thing about the United States is that <laughs> it really is, by historical standards, a truly open country in the sense that yeah. you can find out what is going on as your father did. You just have to make an effort. Like the, the system doesn't make it easier, easy for you. But if you have a library card and an internet connection, you actually can do it. And lastly, can you just tell us a little bit about your dad as a person? Certainly the impression that I get from his work was that he was modest in a really appealing sense and that he always would say that sort of anybody could do this if you just had the willingness to put in the work. And he also was not a self-promoter. You know, he wanted to do the work and mostly let it speak for itself.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I know his, his wife, uh, Diane, who I always would um, encourage him to do more self-promotion. But, you know, I think he also kind of knew, I mean, there definitely was some modesty there. But I think a part of it was also like, you know, he knew what he was good at. And he was, you know, he was a good journalist and he was a good writer and, yeah, and I guess he did sort of feel like the work should speak for itself. And so, I mean, he, he was sort of, he came of age like long before social media. And I, I kind of wonder sometimes how he would have fared these days where it's so much of everything is just really self promotion and like developing a, a huge Twitter following. And, you know, I don't think he would have ever been particularly interested in that. I mean, maybe he would have developed a following anyway based on the, his uh, journalism. Of course, it wasn't completely before or after his time, but um, I don't know. It wasn't part of his development, I guess, as a journalist, but he he had a very strong work ethic. I mean, he would, you know, work from very early hours in the morning until late at night. And I mean, I would sometimes, I I live in Denmark and sometimes I would get a little annoyed when he would, you know, come because he, he never really, he was never really on vacation, even when he would, you know, take a vacation and, it was always, it would always be a working vacation. He never really unplugged, I, I, I would say. But at the same time, he, you know, he was very, he was also very fun loving. You know, he, he had this puppet that he would entertain the, his grandchildren with. they had sort of his alter ego, this uh, like kangaroo puppet called Kanga and, you know, very, you know, fun loving. And, you know, when he, especially when he was around, you know, his, his family and grandkids, you know, you know, a lot of fun. And, you know, I think he took a lot of joy in family life and sports. You know, he was a big sports fan, New England sports, you know, big Red Sox and Patriots and Celtics fan. And so he he did know how to um, sort of unplug at times, but never really would lose sight of his his mission as a, a journalist. And, I mean, there are times, though, I, I would say that, you know, even, like, especially as he was, you know, getting older, I would sometimes encourage him to, like, you know maybe give it a rest and try something else you know because you you can see that it did you know affect him knowing what he knew and and you know, and seeing the just the constant cycle of like you know the the manipulation of the american people and the, the wars that we constantly get involved in and you know and Russiagate and all all this stuff that he kind of could see through very clearly as someone who knew what was going on and you know it would get to him that it would that these things would just keep keep happening and so sometimes i say you know why don't you try something else like just to you know you're um maybe you could relax at this point in your life like because you know he as a a big sports fan i thought you know maybe you could try just writing about sports or something you know something a little less stressful but i don't think that was in his nature and you know he would he would have just continued doing it you know Forever, But, um, you know, unfortunately, he had this uh, like uh, his health uh, went south pretty quickly in um, early 2018 and passed away sort of before his time in some ways. But um, but, yeah, I think he would have he would have kept kept doing it as long as he could have, regardless of the stress that it might have caused him.
1: That was Nat Perry. And that's our show. Nat edited the new book, American Dispatches, a collection of work by his late father, Robert Perry. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm John Schwartz. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. Finally, if you haven't already, subscribe to the show so you can hear each new episode. And please go leave us a rating or a review. It encourages the artificial intelligence podcast gods to tell people about the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts podcastsattheintercept.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.